This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Lots of discussion about AI and how it's going to take over the world, take over our jobs, take over our businesses, uh, interfere with our personal identities. Today, we're going to discover actually the positive side of technology, including AI and blockchain, and how it can actually help our business, help our identities, help us move forward. And I love the positive side of what otherwise a lot of people think is a negative issue. And with us, we have an expert in the area, Alex Tapscott, who wrote the book, Web3, <laughs> Web Three: Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. And uh, it is uh, absolutely a privilege and an honor to have you, Alex, with us. Uh, this is such a big topic for business owners, um, for anybody who's out there and has a presence out there, for anybody who's uh, trying to navigate this new world. So if you will, just give us a little of your background and uh, how you got into this whole blockchain and technology thing. Sure. So, well, I started my career um, in a totally different area, in financial services. And I like talking to people about investing and how technology impacts the fortunes of businesses, because that's really where I got my start. I was in investment banking for almost an entire decade, working in Toronto and New York. Uh, what, what people in my industry call a trad-fi person, a traditional finance person. I had a CFA um, charter and you know was working in various kinds of roles in the capital markets. And it was there that I actually first learned about the, uh, this thing, Bitcoin. Now, this was before the term blockchain entered the vernacular and before Web3 or even AI uh, was top of mind for a lot of people. There was this sort of new technology, new, new asset class that had burst onto the scene. A lot of people were curious about. The more I looked into Bitcoin, though, the more convinced I became that it was the underlying technology, the blockchain uh, itself, that held the most promise, uh, not just for financial services, the industry that I was working in, but for business as a whole. And to make a long story short, Within a year, I'd quit my job to join on to a book project, to write a book with my father, Don Tapscott, who's written a dozen books about business and technology. And uh, that book, Blockchain Revolution, came out in 2016. Now, now, they say that luck is the combination of preparation, good timing. Um, I think it was um, Vince Lombardi who said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And so we had this book that we've been working on like crazy and put all this effort into, and it came out at the perfect time. You know, 2016, 17, I think was really when People were beginning to understand that there was a new, uh, a new group of technologies emerging that was going to make the future look unrecognizable from the past. And our book was, you know, one of the first books to really to explain that. So I've been in this space now for you know half a decade. Um, I've, I'm a pretty prolific writer. I've written for like the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, um, you know, Fortune Magazine, and so forth. But also uh, active as an investor and an advisor and as a portfolio manager. Among other things, I actually run an ETF um, that trades on the TSX that invests into companies harnessing new technologies. So I kind of see it from all angles. And uh, the most recent addition to this uh, is that I'm, I've written this new book, as you pointed out, Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier, which is out in, in September. And I hope will be the, you know, the first big book to explain to a mainstream audience why 
why Web3 is important and why as business owners, as investors, as you know, anyone who cares about the future, why you should uh, why you should understand this new thing. Well, well, let's start with that. So we've heard this idea of Web 1.0, Web 2.0, Web 3.0. Let's just go straight to Web 3.0. In simple, simple terms, how do you explain what is Web 3.0? Sure. Well, let's just define Web 1 and Web 2 first. So um, Web 1, what a lot of people recall as the dot-com era, um, is known today as the read web. And basically what that means is that you could go online and you could access information. Uh, you could read information. And a lot of the early websites in the 90s really resembled things that had come before. So you could, you know, go and look at the classifieds or the sports scores or check the weather or something like that. Um, and the web is really sort of this broadcast medium, a lot like TV or radio, the stuff that had come before. Um, in the early 2000s, you know, the combination of evolving user behavior and some new technologies created a, a new kind of web, web 2. Um, what we now know is the read-write web. So basically, not only can you use the web as a way to access information, but you can upload your own content. You can, you know, write to the web, you can share information, you can create communities, you can collaborate, you can, you know, build social networks, you can do all of this stuff. The web went from a broadcast medium to a communication medium, and that was a huge leap forward. And I think a lot of people hoped that Web 2 was going to usher in a new age of, um, you know, mass collaboration and participation in, in, in business and politics and a bunch of other things. And what ended up happening was a lot of the value that was captured in Web 2 um, accrued to a handful of huge platforms, uh, companies like Facebook, for example, that took the most valuable asset of Web2, which was user data, and sold it to advertisers. And so I think in a lot of respects, the promise of that open web was really unfulfilled. So now enter Web3, uh, the read-write-own web. So not only is the web a way to read information, to, uh, you know, to access content, to consume information, not only is it a way to write to the web that is, you know, program the web, upload your own contact, content, communicate, and so forth. But it's a new platform for us to own the asset class of the digital age. And that means owning our own data, owning our own identities, um, and owning the digital assets that I think are going to be foundational to the next era of business. Um, what, what underpins all of Web3 is this technology known as blockchain. And without getting into the specifics, you can basically just think of blockchain as the first uh, digital medium for value, a way to move and store and manage value peer-to-peer -peer without the need for an intermediary. And that, in the same way that the web is sort of like a peer-to-peer um, -peer network for information, blockchain allows us to do the same for assets. So this new ownership layer of the web, I think, is going to transform a lot of industries from finance to, to culture and, and everything in between. So how does blockchain do that? So blockchain is a distributed ledger. Um, so you can think of a traditional like very simply put, like um, in a normal transaction between parties, we've got a, a, an intermediary, a middleman, like a bank. And a bank maintains a ledger of transactions. So, you know, debits and credits, who owes what to whom, who owns what, and so forth. And for maintaining this ledger and for acting as a trusted third party, they get compensated, right? And banks obviously can get compensated really well, as we well know. Um, what a blockchain is, is a distributed ledger. So rather than the ledger of transactions and ownership sitting inside of a single company, like a bank, um, it is distributed across all the computers that are connected to a specific network. So everybody can see up-to-date entries in that ledger, and everyone can trust the information in that ledger is accurate, but no single entity can alter 
what is in that ledger. The only way that that ledger can be updated or amended in any way is when the whole network reaches consensus. So basically, it takes the trust function from something that happens inside of a, a siloed company like a bank and distributes it across the network. So if you look at a blockchain, a blockchain is basically a record of transactions um, that took place in a network in any asset can be, you know, cryptocurrencies, but it can be any, really anything of value. And I'm happy to explain that in more detail and gives us a way to know uh, that we can move and store these assets peer to peer. Um, and that is, you know, more, more than anything, one of the big breakthroughs, I think, in technology and finance. Um, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but um, in the in the uh, in the Middle Ages, there was this really famous mathematician named Luca Pacioli, and he developed this concept known as double entry bookkeeping. Yep. Uh, basically, the idea that for every transaction you record a debit and a credit, and in the end, the um, the transaction has to balance, which is why we call it a balance sheet. And uh, before that, people were just doing sequential accounting. So they would just like enter debits and credits in over, over time versus doing a consolidation. And people credit the invention of double entry bookkeeping as um, one of the most important innovations in the history of humanity. It, it, it might sound ridiculous. Uh, that, uh, I'm sure accountants love it. But, <laughs> you know, basically there's these certain invisible you know, tools that have been built by humans, inventions that have helped to propel humanity forward. Things like the joint stock corporation, and in this case, double entry bookkeeping. So blockchains, you can think of as basically like either single entry bookkeeping or triple entry bookkeeping. Uh, take your pick. So, you know, an organization can have its own internal ledger of transactions, you know, what it owes and what it's, what is owing to it and so forth. But it also has this third uh, entry, this let, this immutable um, distributed trusted ledger that not only they, but all parties can see and that everyone can rely on as a single source of truth. Right. So that to me is, is something. So, th this, so this is basically the ultimate transparency in transactions, right? I mean, because if everybody can see it, then it's ultimately transparent and it's that transparency that gives it uh, its power. Yeah, that's right. And not only that, it's a it's a ledger that is infinitely programmable. And basically what that means is that you can use it to express anything of value. So not just money, but stocks and bonds and titles and deeds and uh, ownership of things like art and IP, uh, mortgages, letters of credit, commodities, really anything that you can think of um, that has value, any asset can be programmed to be moved on uh, one of these kinds of networks. And that's why people are so excited about the potential of blockchain and Web3 uh, and the idea of tokens being this new sort of frontier for us to imagine new kinds of assets and new kinds of um, and new kinds of business models. So, so um, let's talk about some examples of that so people can kind of get an idea. Obviously, sure. Bitcoin's the most obvious example, but that's just a token. So let's yeah. um, let's talk about this idea of a smart contract, for example. So that is, um, it's it's basically a, an NFT, right? A smart contract, but where everybody can see what's in, inside. So can you kind of walk through that smart contract? Because it could be like Gary Vee has done this with membership into his restaurant, right? Yeah. Um, where you here you have to have this NFT, which says this is my membership card, basically. Yeah. So what, what are some other examples of that? Sure. So that's an example of um, what's called a token-gated community, where basically like if you have a token, then you can access a community, sort of like a membership card to a private club, right? And uh, because these are assets that are not forgeable, that there can only be one of one, in, when in the case of NFTs, uh, you can trust with 100% confidence that 
that anybody who possesses that has access to that club or that service. Um, but that's one of dozens of ap applications of tokens. You, uh, you mentioned this idea of a smart contract. A smart contract is really just um, a simple piece of self-executing code um, that uh, allows people to transact peer-to-peer. -peer. So in, uh, I'll give you several examples quickly. So in financial services, the um, the area in, in Web3 that is trying to tackle this is known as DeFi or decentralized finance. And basically decentralized finance is trying to reimagine financial services from first principles. So, you know, moving of money, storing of money, lending of money, you know, trading and risk management and so forth, um, which is different, by the way, from fintech. You know, fintech is a new sleek user interface that allows you to access the old world of financial services. Right. What Web3 is trying to do is something different. It's trying to reinvent it from the ground up. And so there are lots of examples of projects that use smart contracts in this way. Um, one example would be a, a lending pool. So in a lending pool, basically, if you have collateral, you can uh, pledge it to this contract and you can borrow money against it. And if the collateral declines below a certain value, you'll get liquidated. And then whoever lent that money gets their loan covered. And for your for your listeners, the most uh, the easiest example of this would be like a margin account, right? So if you've got shares held in a margin account at a brokerage and you borrow against it, but the value of the shares goes down, then um, you know, you're going to get a margin call. Well, basically, this is a self-executing margin call that happens all on chain. So uh, this is a, uh, a platform that has grown to billions of dollars in size because there's a lot of demand in, in trading these assets for this kind of service. Another one is Uniswap. Uniswap is a decentralized exchange. So in a decentralized exchange, um, individuals can choose to basically act as liquidity providers. So in the same way that, you know, on the New York, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, there were market makers, right? And those market makers were there to create markets and different securities. Um, in, um, in decentralized exchanges, you can do the same thing. But instead of being out there, you know, actively waving pieces of paper around, you basically just put your pledge, your assets to a smart contract and lock them up. And people can trade against those assets. And in exchange, you earn a yield. So you're basically earning a fee for acting as a market maker, similar to a market maker on a traditional open outcry exchange, right? And all of that is happening in a self-executing um, smart contract environment. Um, another good example is uh, in the stablecoin space. So uh, for people who are maybe new to this topic, stablecoins uh, are one of the, are, in my opinion, the sort of the first killer app of, of blockchain, which is ironic because what they do is commercialize uh, a way to move the US dollar digitally. <laughs> and, and I think it's ironic because I think a lot of people thought, you know, this new technology was going to reduce the need for uh, intermediaries or, you know, reduce the need for trust of, of uh, central banks and so forth. I'm not necessarily of that view, but I think a lot of people felt that initially. But the, but the most important and, and most widely used application of blockchains today is actually this thing called the stablecoin, which is a digital US dollar. So this gives you a way Tom, if you're in the US and I'm in Canada or you're in Timbuktu or whatever, to move money in dollars peer to peer in a matter of seconds, rather than using the correspondent banking network where it can take days or weeks to settle. And all of those transactions are happening on chain. Now, now stable coins can be integrated with smart contracts to do lots of different other things. But the idea basically is that this technology is being applied and that's just in financial services, which is one of a dozen different industries you know, that we could talk about. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon. And 
he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. So uh, let me ask a question that I've wondered about. Um, uh, real estate titles, title companies, title insurance. So it's always seemed to me since I first learned about blockchain that uh, with the right blockchain, title, title insurance would be unnecessary. Um, have you thought, uh, I mean, is, that's an, is that an example where blockchain might actually take over an industry? I think it's certainly possible. I think that a lot of times the, this new technology is running up against um, some form of legacy, legacy infrastructure uh, or installed base of technology or just old habits of doing things that make it practically quite difficult to do. Uh, and I think honestly that, that real estate is, is a really good example of that. Or at least I would say the idea of using a blockchain to record titles and deeds to property, that is an example uh, of where I think it will take a long time to change hands. Because there's a couple of things you have to consider here. Number one, if you want to use a blockchain, then that you have to, uh, you better believe or know that the transactions that happen uh, are valid because blockchains are not amendable. So the last thing you want is the garbage in, garbage out problem where, you know, you move a bunch of titles onto a blockchain and then you find out after the fact that several of them are wrong. <laughs> uh, and then you actually haven't solved the problem. You've made it worse in a way. Right. Um, so th that's something that's that's worth considering. But one area that is really interesting is in the tokenization of real world assets. So there are a lot of people, I live in, in Toronto, Canada, where the real estate market is out of reach, unfortunately, for a lot of people. Um, but it's an asset class that I think a lot of people would love to get some exposure to. And, you know, you could I guess, buy a bunch of houses and put it into a mutual fund and sell units of the fund. Another thing that you can do, though, is to take assets and fractionalize them and turn them into tokens. So the token gives you a claim on a piece of the underlying asset. Now, in a way, a stablecoin is already a version of this. It's a token that gives you a claim on a dollar, a US dollar. Mm -hmm. um, but you could do the same thing. And people are, just to be clear, this is already happening um, in several different um, uh, areas. So um, I don't want to uh, get too jargony here, but you mentioned NFTs. Um, one of the very unfortunate words people are using to describe this is a thing called a fidgetal, <laughs> which basically is a combination of physical and digital, where you have a digital asset that gives you some claim on a physical asset. And that physical asset can be everything from a piece of art to a piece of real estate to a fraction of a dollar or a bar of gold or, or really anything. And that to me is really exciting because you don't have to reinvent the whole um, land titling system for something like that to work. You just need to start dealing in individual assets and finding utility, you know, and, and finding, if you find a market, then people are going to do more of that. So, so one of the things that people like about the stock market is that they, it's called an efficient market, right? It's easy to transact. Um, you have so many buyers and so many sellers that the value is always technically accurate because of all the buyers and the sellers that you have and the small dollar amount of the transactions, because basically what you've done is fractionalized a company. That's all you've done with the stock market. Do you see that happening then with 
real estate, with franchises, with, um, you know, other um, non-traditional assets that are very inefficient right now, do you see that efficiency coming to the marketplace through that tokenization? Well, it, it's, it's such an interesting question. So, you know, the, the stock market is efficient in that, um, you know, it's, they say, you know, Warren Buffett says the stock market's a, um, a voting machine in the short term and a weighing right. machine in the long term, right? So in, in, the, in the long term, the, the mechanism of the market is really good at pricing assets. And so that makes it difficult to generate outsized returns, right? Um, that's the sort of efficient market thesis. I do think that when it comes to market infrastructure, the stock market, there's lots of room for improvement, especially when it comes to cross-border um, trades. You know, I mean, sure. people still buy ADRs of European stocks in New York 50 years after they were invented. It seems odd to me that there isn't a global liquid market for financial assets that trades 24 seven. Um, in all manner of assets, including securities and companies. So like, to me, that's an example of an area of improvement. But I also think that you're correct that um, there's no reason why we can't build marketplaces for other assets that have been traditionally illiquid. And that raises a deeper philosophical question, which is that uh, a lot of economists would say that money was invented to solve the problem of barter. Because right. in a in marketplace, you know, if someone's got a sheep and you've got a cow, like, how do you do the trade, right? You know, a, a cow might be worth one and a half sheep. Well, how do you get a half a sheep, you know? So um, we create this thing called money, which acts as this kind of useless <laughs> medium, but useful in, in context um, to, uh, to address this issue of, of like a problem, the problem of barter. But in an env environment where... Uh, there's a marketplace for most assets and all assets are liquid, then the probability of finding a person who wants what you want uh, or, 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 you know, a person on the other side of a transaction where, you know, I might want, I might own shares of Microsoft, right? And I might want to sell that Microsoft in order to buy a house or to, you know, buy a plane ticket or to, you know, buy shares of another company. The first thing I do, what do I do? I have to sell it to cash and then I have to take that cash and buy something else. So there's a theoretical kind of argument to be made that in a market where all assets are liquid, um, then you can trade what you have for what you want instantly without having to go through, sorry, without having to go through money itself. Um, and there's a lot of actually interesting Web3 projects that are addressing this issue. One is called Anoma. And it's trying to build basically like a marketplace that where like a, um, a blind pool. So people are familiar with sort of how markets work, um, where you can, you know, put a bid in for something. And if there's someone on the other side who has, who can match that trade, then it can execute automatically. And that can happen in any kind of asset. So that's very much like the far frontier of web three. I'm not suggesting that that's tomorrow's story. Um, but in my opinion, that is one of the most exciting areas. I'm glad you raised it. Um, where innovation is happening in the space. So how does AI play into this? Because I don't think it, it, it seems impossible to separate um, what the what blockchain technology will do from how AI then can be used um, even to manipulate things. So how do you see those two working together? Well, I can tell you that um, AI is one of the most important technologies of the second digital age. And I think that's the best way for people to really think about it. You know, in the first digital age, we had a number of different technologies all kind of emerging. Uh, we had, you know, um, computers, PCs, uh, mobile telephony, uh, the internet, et cetera. And they were all viewed as these distinct technologies, but over time they converged, right? And I think the same thing is going to happen now where people talk about uh, blockchains and AI and the internet of things and uh, robotics and 
you know, virtual reality and augmented reality. But over time, I think you're going to see a convergence of these different technologies into one single thing. Um, I believe, uh, or not in one single thing, but they're going to be so intertwined with each other that we're going to think of them as one single thing. So, you know, I think in a, in a future where you've got billions of people, trillions of connected devices, um, you know, autonomous AI agents, <laughs> um, not to mention smart contracts and corporations and everything else in between, needing to prove their identity, to transact, move value, to establish trust, to, to collaborate. Um, that's not going to happen with existing financial um, tools, and it's probably not going to be through existing platforms, technology platforms. We need a new kind of operating system for the digital age. And I think that the convergence of AI and blockchain is really what's going to help us get there. So it almost sounds like blockchain is what protects us from the um, nefarious side of AI. Um, the concern, of course, for um, performers, um, anybody that has a you know a personality out there on the internet is, oh boy, we're I mean people are going to be able to copy us, right? I mean it's AI; they can use our voice, they can use our our image, et cetera. And will blockchain then be the protection against that? Say, well, look, um, this is who, you know, Alex Tapscott, this is the real Alex Tapscott, as opposed to all the fakes that I'm sure you've got fake in Instagram accounts. You've probably got, you've got probably people copying you. How do you, how does, how do those going to work together? And how does the AI not just, you know, the, the criminal element of AI not, not just take off? Yeah. Well, to, to start, you know, I'm, I try to be a realist about these things. I don't think that technology is the solution to all problems, but I also don't think it's the source of all problems either. Um, I think that, you know, right now we're, we've experienced a moral panic in AI and we experienced a moral mm -hmm. panic in Web3 too. You know, I think there are a lot of people who look at Web3 and they see in tokens, for example, uh, a new way for people to speculate or a new way for criminals to avoid sure. law enforcement, right? And with AI, they see a technology that is going to wipe out jobs and is going to rob us of our humanness and is going to create an existential crisis for humanity. Um, there, there's always some truth in both of those things, right? It's not it's not that those, those concerns should be dismissed. Um, but I do think that, you know, when it comes to AI, there is a real concern that this technology can be wielded in a way that can undermine um, individuals, especially creators. You know, uh, for, for, for a very long time, technology has been a tailwind for people who work in creative industries. There was a period in time in the Middle Ages when they had to rely on the patronage of wealthy individuals like, you know, the Medici clan. But industrial technology, you know, the printing press, the lithograph, the LP made it possible that you could create something and actually sell it to a mass market and you could free yourself from the bondage of, of patrons. <laughs> And, uh, you know, in the 20th century, we had a, uh, an environment where creators like musicians, for example, could earn a decent living from royalties earned from the sale of records and CDs. So more recently, technology's got a bit more of a ch checkered uh, track record, right? So the internet took this thing that was, uh, a um, was an asset, you know, a CD, you had to go out and buy it, whatever, um, and turned it into a free commodity, right? It was put through the printing press of the web and you could just get a copy of it from somewhere illegal or whatever. Um, and that that created the need for new kinds of intermediaries to, to create order. And that's where we've got streaming platforms like Apple and Spotify. But the upshot is that today creators make less than they did, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago for the same amount of output. And then now you've got AI, which is saying, uh, you know, we're going to basically, I don't know, in the case of screenwriters, we'll get the AI to write a script using your, right. you, you know, in the voice of, you know, whoever. 
Um, and then you can go and polish it up and we'll pay you a one-time fee of 20,000 bucks to polish it up, but you're not going to be the author of that work. You're not going to earn royalties from that work. And that's how most people in creative industries get paid. You know, it's like a, the iceberg there's for every Taylor Swift and Margot Robbie, there are thousands of people just working, um, to get by, you know, in, in, in any industry. Um, so I don't know that there is a solution, but I'll give you in a couple of examples. So one of the things that creators are really worried about is that the their creative work going into a large language model is going to create some output where they're not going to get fairly compensated. Well, there are uh, platforms uh, around that try to basically take creative content and watermark it using a token so that if it ever gets put through you know, an LLM on the other side, it's going to retain some sort of proof of ownership that is going to maybe create a way for creators to get paid. Now, I think that there's two ways to do this. One is regulation um, and uh, and collective bargaining. So, you know, the 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 unions and the government agree that if you're going to use that information in a large language model, then you got to pay the creators. And if you don't, it's illegal. And that's a that's a totally valid way to do it. Um, another way is to to use technology tools to um, ensure rather than to hope for trust to 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 basically like guarantee trust. Um, and guarantee compensation as a result. So that's one thing. Another thing that creators are doing that's really interesting with um, uh, with uh, tokens and NFTs is um, basically like using them as a way to sell more uh, and rarer kinds of collectibles that that fans can you know buy. Um, whether it's you know it, in the same way that they, people might buy a rare poster, or T-shirt, or you know what what have you trinket, um, they're looking for ways to support fans, and this is a new sort of economic um, frontier for them to do that. So I think that's sort of interesting too. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the future is not something to be predicted. <laughs> it's something to be achieved. And, um, you know, if anything, I'm hoping that this book is going to help ignite the curiosity and interest of a lot of smart people who are thinking about these problems, because I certainly don't have the answer to all of them. But in, in, in it, I see both the challenge and the solution. I, I love it. So what are... Um... If we can just wrap up here with what are two or three uh, steps or things that a business owner investor can do to actually be looking at how do I make it work for me instead of against me? Yeah, sure. So uh, the first thing they should do is to pre-order my book in massive volume. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, okay. Number All one, right. get get educated. We'll, we'll put that under the get educated. Um, yes. Education, number one. Number two um, would be personal use. So I think that it's, you know, look, there's, as with anything, you know, if you want to understand how, how a large language model works, use ChatGPT, <laughs> try it out. Uh, use Dolly, get a feel for it, understand its, its abilities and limitations. Um, you know, open up a MetaMask wallet, like a wallet, buy a crypto asset, buy a stable coin. If you have kids, send them some money. They probably already have a wallet. You know, um, do you employ someone? Maybe you've got a housekeeper or a nanny. They're probably using it to send money home uh, overseas, which is at least true in Toronto where I live. So I think personal use is a precondition to understanding for any new technology. Um, you know, and, and the more you, we use it, the more we understand it, the less we fear it, is my opinion. Um, and then the third thing would be, you know, starting out. Um, the, the best time to learn about uh, generative AI and, and blockchains was probably 10 years ago. <laughs> but, but the next best time is, today. So um, don't, don't delay your journey, um, you know, get started. I love it. I love it. The book is Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Alex Tapscott, it's been a, a privilege and honor uh, hearing you. I do want to know more. So I'm very interested. Um, this is an amazing frontier 
for business, for investors. And uh, just remember when we get this kind of education and we really start to understand what's possible out there, we're always gonna make way more money and pay way less tax. We'll see everybody next time. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.